Pints with Jack, Season 3, Episode 21. Till We Have Faces, Part 2, Chapter 2, Troubled Vision. Good morning and welcome to Pints with Jack, a podcast where two enthusiastic C.S. Lewis amateurs get together, share a beverage and discuss a work of C.S. Lewis. This season we'll be reading Till We Have Faces. My name is David and I'm joined by Matt... I can't believe he got this. You can't keep a good man down, Bush. <laughs> I nailed it. Guys, just two minutes before we started this recording, I just looked at it for fun, and my mind just started putting things to it, and the sentence came together. I'm like, Y-C-K-A. All right, you can't keep a good man down. Nailed it. Welcome, Matt. <laughs> I feel... <laughs> Oh, this is, you guys, this is going to be a great episode. Matt is just on point. His brain is clearly making word associations very well. Just get ready for a good one. Well, you, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about world events shortly, but uh, before we get to that, what are you drinking? I'm drinking herbal tea. And for people who have been listening to this, that's because I'm not supposed to be drinking alcohol right now with Exodus 90. But as I was revealing to David, it's been very hard to follow all of this stuff in a quarantine state when you're home, kind of depressed, you don't have your spiritual routines. So I went from about 90 to 95% doing it to 60, 65 now. And I don't know if I should just give up on the alcohol so we can go back to drinking some scotch on this show <laughs> in these depressing times. Well, in these times, I have a special drink. Uh, the base of it is emergency. If uh, people outside of the United States, it's like a vitamin supplement. It's a powder. You pour it in, you add water, and it's bubbly and effervescent. It's, it's, very, it's very nice. Uh, but I have emergency... Uh, covered with, with ice and then gin poured over the top. And so this is a quarantini. No way. I've seen a few people putting out uh, putting out recipes online. And this one I thought, I'm going to give this one a go. Is it good? I haven't tried it yet. I, I used strawberry emergency because that was the only stuff that we had in the house. And it's a very pretty pink color. Try it. If it's good, I'm going to make it right now. <laughs> I have all the well, stuff. It'll before- be one minute break. <laughs> Well, before we get to that, give us the quote of the week. Okay. So this is from near the end of the chapter when Orwell has some great realizations that's of who her true self is, and it's painful for her. And so she wants to kill herself. Yeah, you're about to give a summary anyway, so we're not giving spoilers. And she hears a God say this, you cannot escape Unget by going to the Deadlands, for she is there also. Die before you die. There's no chance after. I really like that. We'll probably unpack that later, but die before you die. You have to give up your life to find it. On that note, cheers. Cheers. Ooh. Ooh, I like that. Is it good? I, I think it's great. You, you might hate it. <laughs> I, I, I'll be right back. <laughs> Sorry, Nick. <laughs> Matt's back, everyone. Let's re-cheers this, David. Cheers. Cheers. Mm, that is quite nice. It's really strange. <laughs> I, have, I have pink lemonade. <sighs> so we should probably talk about what's happening in the world. So the coronavirus is doing its thing. Uh, how's it changed your life? Personally and then spiritually. So personally, not so much. I'm super introverted, so the world just learned to live how I live. 
I don't <laughs> see people throughout the week really. Uh, my office space is pretty isolated, and so most people aren't going there. I'm still going in. I can. Um, there's like no one around, so it's pretty much isolation. There's a small gym in there, so that hasn't closed down. So yeah, my life is pretty much the same. I've stocked up on a lot of groceries, though, so I stay inside. But the big thing that I would say is spiritually, I don't realize how much I need the nourishment of the daily bread of the Eucharist. That's been really hard for me. And I guess I haven't, I've been seeing all these things online, Amilus Christis, Milos, Miles, Christos, Christis. <laughs> Miles Christi. That one. Did a beautiful video, nine minutes on the spirituality in this and really developing that longing and going into spiritual communion. And I appreciate all that, but that's really hard for me. I guess I'm just a person of routine and I've fallen in love with the daily mass and I have to get out of my apartment and I like to be in the church and environment. Here's, I guess what I'm trying to say is I process all this. The environment's huge for me and it's very hard for me in my room to do this stuff. And I'm keeping rosary practices up in some silence and solitude, but it's not easy when you've got computers around media technology, which is the part of the XS90 that's been really tough when you're at home. Or a co-host who's drinking a quarantini and you go, I want one. <laughs> yeah. Notice how, notice how little resistance my willpower was against that. <laughs> so as all, as, Hey, all listeners at least know Matt is honest and human and weak. Flawed, flawed, deeply flawed. Uh, well, life for me is somewhat similar. Uh, my routine hasn't changed a whole lot. I'd actually been able to go into the office for most of this past week. Um, Guys, don't forget there's a time delay here. So this was actually several weeks ago when we've published. Uh, but it was then that the governor of California then said, all right, we're shutting everything down. And so I've actually only worked from home one day. And this Sunday was the first Sunday that I haven't gone to church, which is very strange. But Marie came over and in the Byzantine church, we have a service specifically designed for this sort of thing for when people can't actually get to church. It's called the Tipica. And so she came over, we were in our church clothes, we went to my icon corner, we sang the liturgy, and then we sat down and discussed the readings for this Sunday. I actually rather liked it. I very much appreciate on these podcasts you sharing the little things of yours and Marie's routines, because they're very beautiful and they're very inspiring. And I hear it and I think to myself, I hope I can do that someday. But I know I'm not to that level of devotion, discipline, spiritually yet. And I'm definitely not there in a group sense. That's where my introverted side, like I have, I spend a deep amount of time in faithful stuff each day, hour, hour and a half between mass and rosary and prayer time. But I just, it's all alone stuff. And I, I don't... I hope I can, I'm going to need to be able to mesh those with whoever I spend the rest of my life with, obviously, but. You've just, you've just got to find the right girl and then put a ring on it, which is something I did just recently. <laughs> oh, yes. So that's not been announced yet. <laughs> yeah. If you've followed us on social media, you'll have no doubt have seen pictures of the two of us and Marie sporting a massive rock on her finger. <laughs> uh, but yes, I, I proposed to her at Vespers a few weeks ago. Oh, I feel like on here I should be like saying congratulations, even though we already did this a few weeks ago. <laughs> yeah, did it a while ago. <laughs> Woo! This is exciting, David. I'm happy for you. It is. Now, 
it might just be a wedding with us and the priest, but we'll work that out. <laughs> it will be equally as sacramental and beautiful in God's eyes. The funny thing is, is the current restrictions are we could get married right now, but we're allowed a max of 10 people in the church. And Marie's family is way bigger than that. So I've just told her she might have to choose her favorite siblings. <laughs> David, I was standing in the back with my, um, you know what you can do with me? If there's only 10 people, you can just put a, uh, a video. Looks like our Skype sessions. Oh, we're going to be live streaming it. I mean, it's, it's as if we do all of these podcast episodes, you know, it would, it almost seems fitting actually. It's just preparation. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I've been training for this moment for two years, David. <laughs> all right, let's, uh, let's get on with today's chapter. So we're going to be reading chapter two in part two. And, uh, Things start to get real at this point. Yes. Orwell is in the temple for the springtime ritual. She sits in the temple with Arnhem waiting for midday. In the meantime, she peppers the priest with questions about Ungit without getting satisfying answers. She sees a peasant woman come into the temple to offer sacrifice on Ungit's stone, and she goes away revitalized. At noon, Arnhem passes through the western door and is greeted by joyful crowds. When Orwell returns to the palace, she has a vision of her father, who takes her to the pillar room. They progressively dig, passing through smaller and smaller copies of the pillar room until they finally arrive before the king's mirror. Orwell sees and declares that she is Ungit. Orwell then tries to commit suicide, first with her sword and then by drowning herself in the river during the night. But the god of the mountain appears and commands her to stop. I'm hoping we get a chance. I don't know if it'll be in the middle of this conversation at the end. But there's a lot here on what it means to descend into your inner ugliness, honestly, and from a spiritual perspective. So I hope we get a chance to unpack this. I hope it gets further unpacked in chapters three and four, because I haven't read those now in a year and a half either, and I'm not ahead right now, so... (laughs) <laughs> but there was, I was sick into that. I was like, there's a lot of truth into this, of what it means to really descend into your inner ugliness. And it reminds me of that blog post I wrote of Jean Valjean when he became the mayor and had to go back to his old identity because he tried to suppress it. But instead, you have to lean into it and go deep into it. To go through it, or I guess to get over it, you have to go through it. You can't like go around it. Who am I? I'm Jean Valjean. I haven't seen this yet. The musical is fantastic. Actually, at a wedding, I was best man, and we did a flash mob of the song One Day More. It was only the groom who didn't know this was happening, because normally this is the sort of nonsense that he would plan. Oh, uh, I I've, am reading the book right now. I'm almost done with it, and I've decided to jump ahead and just watch the movies. And So it sounds like the, that, <laughs> that musical, is that the 2012 version then? Uh Yes, it it came out as the movie when they got married. The movie hadn't come out, but the musical is extremely famous. Okay, I'll have to go see the musical sometime. Absolutely. Well, let's jump in. So a few days after Orwell's conversation with Bardi's wife, uh, she's in the house of Ungit, and this is for the rite of the year's birth. And this is actually something that she mentioned back in chapter nine, when they were going up the mountain and They went past the temple and she says, every spring the priest is shut into the temple and fights or makes believe to fight his way out to the western door. And this means that the new year is born. And the fact that Orwell is here at this time, the liturgical year, the season 
it's incredibly symbolic that something new is about to happen. And regarding that liturgy, in this chapter we get lots more details. Uh, We're told that the priest is shut up in the house of Ungit from sunset all the way through the night, and it's the following noon that he fights his way out. And Oral points out the oddities of all of this ritual, the fact that the fight is with wooden swords, instead of blood, wine is poured over the combatants, and although the western door is shut up, there's actually two smaller doors at the other end of the temple which are open and worshippers can come in and out whenever they want. And she tells us that traditionally the king would go in with the priest at sunset and spend the night in the temple, but that it's unlawful for a virgin to be present during the night. And so she only goes in by the north door about an hour before the main event. And I was wondering, Matt, why do you think a virgin isn't allowed in this temple during the night? I was wondering the same thing. I was going to ask you that, David. (laughs) Well, I have a thought because she goes on and talks a little bit about some of the stuff that happens during the night. And when she comes in, she says it's a very stifling atmosphere. And she says there had been sensing, so it's incense and slaughtering and pouring of wine and pouring of blood and dancing and feasting and towsing of girls and burning of fat all night long. So I think that there has been some naughty business that goes on in the temple. And I think that's progressively revealed. And it's very fitting. It's very in keeping with the cults of Aphrodite in the ancient world. Yes. No, but I'm actually curious if you can expand. So, so does that mean, I do agree with you, by the way, that there's naughty stuff going on. There's even a passage a little bit later that seems to really suggest it. Talks about the wastedness like, of something. Yes. I, I want to talk about that because I think that's really significant. Uh-huh. But I'm curious. So, so your thought then, what you're saying right now is because of that, they want to keep purity of virginity out of there. So you're not c- combining or contaminating those two? Mm-hmm. I think so. Because this, this, uh, the cult of Ungit seems to be some kind of fertility cult. So the idea of having a virgin in there doesn't seem right in a twisted sort of way. True. And I think they, yeah, they said the girls in there are to the point of barrenness now. So, Yeah. And Orwell says that you know, outside it was so lovely and fresh. And when she comes in, despite all of Arnhem's attempts to make the temple lighter and cleaner, she still finds it oppressive and smothering is the word that she uses. And she goes to her assigned place. She sits on this flat stone and it's opposite the Ungit stone. So that's the, this deformed stone that's of no real shape. Uh, And the Greek-style statue of Aphrodite is a little on her left. And the priest Arnhem, he's sitting on her right, and he's wearing his bird mask. He's apparently a little tired from a long night. And there's some drums beating. And Orwell tells us that the terrible girls are down the sides of the temple, sitting cross-legged outside their cells. So it's clear that they live in this temple. And she speaks a little bit about the degradation of these girls over time, how they transform into toothless crones. And this is the passage that you alluded to earlier. And I think this is, this is central to what Orwell understands about Ungit and eventually about herself. She writes, And I thought how the seed of men might have gone to make hardy boys and fruitful girls was drained into that house and nothing given back. So you have these men coming into this temple and doing things with the temple girls, but it doesn't end in life. It doesn't, it's not life-giving not fruitful. And she goes on and says, I also thought about how silver that men had earned hard and needed was also drained in there. So money pours into this temple and nothing given back. And how the girls themselves were devoured and were given nothing back. 
You've got this repeated idea of consumption, consuming, and nothing giving back. It remains barren, fruitless, which is exactly what Ansett said Orwell did to Bardia. I'm wrestling with the thought right now of what would be, what would we take from our own spiritual analogy today? Because I, I love how you kept saying nothing giving back. It's consuming, it's taking. And actually the first, or the words I really like that you use was life-giving. Like this is not life-giving, but there's other things that are life-giving. So what is Lewis trying to communicate here that we can take away that this form of X is not life-giving, but living a life this way, a different way is life-giving. I can't, I can't put my finger on yet exactly what he's trying to, con- unless he's, just, unless it's just, I'm overthinking it. And it's just, there are certain types of love that are devouring and certain types of loves that are life-giving in Christian love, following Christian teaching, the way that explains we're supposed to live. And I'm even thinking of Christian teaching of chastity and virtues, which a lot of times people think are constraining or actually life-giving. I'm not sure if that's something being communicated here. I think that makes sense. And also if we're right about the naughty stuff happening in the temple, it's a defamation of Eros. Hmm. Yes. Because it doesn't meet its natural end. It's not love, it's use. And we're called to love, we're called to love people and use things, not use people and love things. Mm, that's a quote, David. Should put that on the gram. <laughs> Orwell then describes the Ungit stone. And she tells the story that apparently it was pushed up from the earth. Lots of other sacred stones, they fall to earth as meteorites fall from the heavens. But this one comes up from the earth. And she says it's a foretaste of, or an ambassador from, whatever things may live and work down there, one below the other, all the way down under the dark and weight and heat. (laughs) And that's going to be important before the end of this chapter, particularly when she has her vision. So is the next thing about to be quite important? The next thing? Yes, the fact that when she looks at the rock and the rock is faceless, mm. but she says by having no face, instead it has a thousand faces. And that's very fitting because if we remember in the past, Orwell's mentioned because she has no veil and even of recent, people started projecting onto her and almost creating faces. So this rock is very symbolic here. And she says that she even perceives the face of Bata there on the rock and it inadvertently triggers some happy memories of the nurse that the queen had killed imagine if she would have thought of these before she had her killed yeah you know you you always realize something just afterwards (laughs) yeah last time i killed someone i had the same thought yeah yeah killer's remorse (laughs) and while she's waiting oral asks the priest arnim a series of questions she asks him who is ungit and he responds by saying she signifies the earth which is the womb and mother of all living things. And Oral comments that the way of speaking that the priest was adopting was something that he had learned from the fox. Okay, so Ungit is the womb and mother of all things. But she then asks, well, if that's the case, why is her relationship to the god of the mountain special? She's the mother of all things. Why is she particularly the mother to the god of the mountain? And the priest says, well, the god of the mountain is the god of the air. And he points to the appearance of mist coming up from the ground, which eventually become the clouds of the sky. And so then Orwell then goes on to, okay, uh, and then in what sense is the god of the mountain Ungit's husband? And Arnhem points to the showers which come down from the sky, which make the earth fruitful. And one thing that's worth remembering in all of this is she has met the god of the mountain. (laughs) And she asks 
If that's all it means, why is it wrapped up in such a strange story? Why create these stories if it's just talking about the natural cycles of nature? And Arnhem says it's doubtless to hide it from the vulgar. And at this point, Oral just decides to stop peppering him with questions. But she is definitely very unimpressed. She says, it's very strange that our fathers should first think it worth telling us that rain falls out of the sky, and then, for fear of such a notable secret should get out, wrap it up in a filthy tale so that no one could understand the telling. I'm wondering what you make of that sentence, doubtless to hide it from the vulgar. I put a question mark next to it, spent a few minutes thinking of it, and then said David probably has an answer. <laughs> I'm not entirely sure that I do. I think, actually, you know what? I'm just going to say that. I'm not entirely sure that I do. <laughs> I, think he's, I think he's just retreating to the, oh, well, it's a mystery. It's, it's, it's to hide things from the uninitiated, maybe. I kept thinking of, I kept coming back to, no, never mind. <laughs> I was going to say, though, is this isn't exactly, I actually think it was later in the chapter, there's something that made me think of it, but the reason that we, I almost think of the Eucharist, I think of Moses on the mountain with God. There's certain things that we just can't handle the fullness of a mystery or a truth, and even even the glory of God himself, that they call it the Shekinah, something. Mm-hmm. The glory cloud. Yeah, and so we, it needs to be hid behind something. And I know that this doesn't quite connect to that because this is just a teaching of how rain and earth work, but that, that came to my mind. Yeah, I'm not entirely sure if the priest knows <laughs> because don't forget, he has taken a reality and reduced it to some form of allegory. True. A story of the gods to describe how the seasons work. And, well, why, why would you bother doing that? If you're not going to believe that it's real, why bother? But Oral, she basically gives up asking him questions because she's not getting answers that she likes. And she then sees a peasant woman come into the temple and it's clear that she's been crying. Something is wrong in her life. And one of the priests takes a pigeon that she's brought in and the pigeon is killed and offered in sacrifice and the blood poured out on Ungit's stone. And then the woman falls at the stone's feet and she cries for a long time. But she eventually gets up, straightens herself out and Orwell writes that it was as if a sponge had been passed over her. The trouble was soothed. She was calm, patient, able for whatever she had to do. And Orwell asks the woman, because she's intrigued by this, how she gets such sustenance from the gods. And she asks if Ungit comforted her. And she says she has. And then she asks, does she always pray to the stone of Ungit rather than the nearby statue, the beautiful Greek statue of Aphrodite? And the response is a little strange. She says that she always prays to the stone because the Greek Ungit wouldn't understand her speech. And that's only for nobles and learned men. So what do you make of that? Well, why does she prefer the rock? Again, I keep my first thought. This is just association. I don't know. But I think back to actually in the, the church, in the historical church, the early church, well before people were literate. If we remember, it took, I mean, what, really for the first thousand years, millennia, I mean, people weren't very literate. I'd go, I'd go longer than that. But anyway. Probably longer. Yeah, I wanted to be safe. <laughs> you, had, you have these practices that, so someone could go and be reading scripture and stuff, but most people couldn't do that. So you had these practices, stained glass, these different icons, rituals that really helped orient people towards the divine despite their lack of learnedness or lack of literacy. I guess that's the first thing that came to my mind here. But that doesn't mean those other things were bad. So the learned men could go then to like the reading of scripture and dig into theology, but that just would fall on deaf ears to the lay person. 
But why does she prefer a stone rather than a beautiful statue? Surely we're attracted to the thing that's more beautiful. Are we? I would say yes. Are you sure? I'm pretty sure, yeah. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> Isn't beauty in the eye of the beholder? True, but if you're looking at a gnarly rock with lots of blood all over it and you think that's beautiful, I think there's something wrong with you. Maybe it has something to do with her own inner, like not feeling worthy. Possible. I think there's something more primitive about the rock that she feels that she can connect to. She can't quite come near the beauty of the statue. And it's strangely, she almost thinks that that god, the Greek Ungit, won't understand her speech. I'm not sure if she means that, you know, the, the Greek Ungit only speaks Greek and my words, just not going to understand it. But her comment about that's for learned men, it definitely seems to be that she can't relate to that god. Whereas this gnarly rock, that's something that she can somehow connect to. It, it taps into something very deep inside her. I will say in this, this transaction or this exchange, Orwell's got to be having her worldview challenged right now to see someone so comforted by Unget, something that's so foreign to her, something that seems honestly fake to her to some degree. She hasn't figured all this God stuff out, angry at them, but like, yeah. So this, this has got to really challenge that to see it, something so primitive, so ritualistic, all this sacrifice that frustrates her works so profoundly on someone. And that continues in the rest of her experience in the temple. Because at noon, there's the sham fight at the Western Door. And when they break through, this great mob is shouting, he is born, he is born. And that she tells us that they're whirling their rattles and throwing wheat seed into the air, all sweaty and struggling and climbing over one another's backs just to get a sight of Arnhem and the rest of the party. And it did remind me of the celebrations in the Christian liturgical year. At Christmas, when we proclaim Christ is born. And at Easter, when we proclaim he is risen. And anyone that's ever gone to Christmas or Easter mass and liturgy, sometimes that's when everybody turns up. So you're usually quite crushed, but you're still excited to be there. And not just because Santa Claus might have visited. Uh, and Oral, she's seen all this happen for years. But this time, what really strikes her is the joy in the people, much like the peasant woman. They seem to get something out of this. And she says that despite they've been waiting so long and so cramped together, and they have lives that are full of cares, they're joyful. And she says they were looking as if all the world was well because a man dressed up as a bird had walked out of a door after striking a few blows with a wooden sword. Even those who were knocked down in the press to see us made light of it and indeed laughed louder than the others. I saw two farmers whom I knew were the bitterest enemies clap hands and cry, he is born. Brothers for the moment. This will really rock her worldview. Yeah, I think she's just puzzled. And I can imagine if you're not a person of faith and you see anyone of any faith expressing joy, particularly as a result of a liturgical celebration, you might scratch your head. But I still find it strange because she has met at least one of these gods, but she still can't quite connect the two. What's interesting too is I would imagine she's now ready to experience this because she was very closed off for all of part one. She had her worldviews. She was very rigid. She couldn't take in new information as we've seen because of hurts and wounds and whatever you want to attribute it to. But now she's at this point where she's realized in the last one, her love was wrong and her worldview was wrong in that. And there was another perception, another way of perceiving things. Now she's getting that from her perception of the gods and their role. And she calls them all devouring, all consuming, yet Maybe they are giving something, actually. They're giving peace. 
they're not, I mean, yes, they're taking, but they're giving peace too. And so maybe she's just not seeing the other side of the gods. She's only seeing the taking side. I don't know. Well, she returns to the palace to rest. And after sinking into deep thought, she experiences a dream, a vision. I like to think of all of these are basically waking visions. She hears a voice and it's her father standing beside her saying, get up, girl. And all at once, her years of queenship and her adulthood seem to just disappear. And she goes to put on her veil, but he stops her and tells her just to come with him to the pillar room. And this is, isn't this amazing too, an example of how, I remember a line in here, and I don't have it memorized, but where she, she points out how she can't seem to escape her father. This is a lot of her wounds, a lot of her true self, the inner shame that she beholds is her relationship with her father. And she's tried in the same way she's tried to lock Psyche up. She's tried to lock this up. You can't lock it up. You have to go through it. And yeah, she's like, oh my gosh, I can't escape this. I thought being coming the queen would have gotten rid of it. Nope. She is a little girl. The shame is coming back up. And there it is that quickly. And she's about to say something. And I think it's really appropriate that her father is there with her. Because they arrive in the pillar room. And she notes that there's no mirror there. Because she'd given it to Redival as a wedding present. And together, Orwell and the king, they use pickaxes to dig through the floor in the center of the room. And there's something really important to know here, the meaning of Orwell's name. Uh, I looked up the Greek for it. It's uh, Oruxis. Would you like Taz to guess what it means? Well, I don't want to lie to listeners. I just looked at your notes and so I know what it means. (laughs) Uh, Whenever I answer those genuinely, I do. But this one I have right in front of me. (laughs) It means digging or excavation. But I am in awe right now. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. I don't know the last time I've done a slow clap, but that's a great find, David. I don't know <laughs> if you read that somewhere or what, but nicely done. It was, it was Christine's book that put me onto it. Oh, well done, Christine. And it's very appropriate because we're now about to dig down into Oral. We're about to dig, dig down into her soul, into her mind, into her psyche. Ooh, well done, David. You're just full of them. But I want to point out too here that when... She has to pick up the pickaxes and the king says, let's like start digging. I think it's significant the words that he says at each of the different stages. And so the first one he says goblin, which I think really relates to the first one of the main shames that she has the first one of her being ugly physically. But then the next one I think is related to another shame. So she's digging through these different layers. Her ugliness is the first shame. And they dig this hole and uh, a hole opens up below them. And the king tells her to throw herself down. And there's actually a little bit of a parallel with The Pilgrim's Regress, which was the first book that Lewis wrote after becoming Christian, uh, where John has to dive headfirst into the water. Um, But in this case, Orwell has no choice. The king just grabs her hand and just pulls her down. And they're unhurt by this very long fall, but they arrive in a smaller copy of the pillar room. And this time it's made out of raw earth. So we've, we've gone one level deeper. And once again, there is no mirror. And the king gives her a spade and they start to dig. And another big hole opens up. And in this one, he says, so this one, he says, um, do you mean to slug a bed all your life? So the last one was goblin ugliness. This one's like laziness or softfulness or something of that nature. Do you mean to a slug a bed all your life? Like he uses different words each time. And these are both insults that he's given her before. He's called her a goblin daughter. And when she was recovering from her sickness, he said, do you mean to slug a bed your whole life? Yes. Uh, 
and now, now that the hole is open, once again, her dad tells her to throw herself down. And he, he adds an extra comment. He says, there's no fox to help you here. We're far below any dens that foxes can dig. And if the fox is meant to represent reason, it shows that we're almost going beyond reason, something that she can't just reason through. She can't be saved from this just through mere logic. And they fall down even further than before and are once again unhurt. And they are in yet another, even smaller pillar room. And this one is made out of living rock. And something strange is happening. She tells us that the room appears to be shrinking. And I'm not entirely clear whether it's just her claustrophobia. But either way, she panics. And it's at this point that the king asks the same question that Orwell asked the priest earlier in the temple. Who is Ungit? said he, still holding my hand. Then he led me across the floor. I saw the mirror on the wall. I was not so much dragged as sucked along till we stood right in front of the mirror. My face was the face of Ungit, as I had seen it that day in her house. Who is Ungit? asked the king. I am Ungit. My voice came wailing out of me, and I found that I was in the cool daylight and in my own chamber. What? So the vision has now ended. Yes. <laughs> I, what do you make of this? This, this? this was my first real what the heck moment. Yeah, I mean, what I'm trying to decide is I'm going to answer this from the assumption of who she sees Ungit as. Because I'm not sure we're very clear yet whether Ungit's good, bad. We've been seeing so far most of Ungit through the lens of Orwal. But from the lens of Orwal, Ungit seems to be vindictive, devouring of love, taking things from her psyche, giving into her, like almost being a creator of her shame and all this stuff. Like Ungit's her problems, creates all of her problems. She doesn't like Ungit. So I almost make this as she's descended into the deepest core of her being and realized she, at her core, is an ugliness that she's been suppressing. Because she's never, up until this point, now the last chapter she saw a little of this, but realized how ugly she is at her core. Not like a surface ugliness, not that first round. That first round she kind of knew, and that's what she was hiding with the veil, this physical ugliness. But there's an ugliness to her love, her devouring nature and ugliness to the way she's treated people. That is an immensely tough thing to come to realize. And I think of our own lives when we descend into ourselves and we really take a good look at, and I got to be careful what language I use here, but part of our spiritual journey is recognizing how screwed up and broken we are to then ultimately realize how loved we are. But so often we do things in life to, I do this more than any human being in the world, I feel like, because of my type three Enneagram false self of success. It's like I do certain spiritual practices to convince myself that I'm worthy of God's love. But the real thing I need to do is descend into, Matt, you are really a messed up person. So sometimes I think when I screw up things like Exodus 90, that's God's way of, of saying, Matt, that's what I wanted from you right now, because you got to stop thinking you're that great. You're not going to be able to white knuckle this. And you know what? You are a terribly undisciplined human being. And you've created this illusion that because of like success and accomplishments and schooling and studying that everyone, because everyone always says, oh, you're so disciplined. It's like, well, I don't know. Maybe I'm just a broken, messed up person. I have so much to say on this, but I'm going to hold it until we finish this chapter. Oh, you let me go ahead here and just start spewing and then we got to come back. Okay. Dude. Yep. No, I think, it, I think it's all good. Uh, and I want to come back to it, but I think I want to, I want to get to the end of this chapter and then we'll revisit it. 
But I, Orwell does seem to see the truth in this vision. She says, It was I who was Ungit. That ruinous face was mine. I was the batter thing, that all-devouring, womb-like, yet barren thing. Gloam was a web. I, the swollen spider, squat at its centre, gorge with men's stolen lives. And that's just a reiteration of everything that Ansit, Bardia's wife, had said to her shortly before this event. And this whole coming to the mirror, it reminds me of the first chapter of the Epistles of James, where James talks about the person who looks at a mirror and immediately turns away, forgetting what he sees. And so the question is, will Orwell forget? How will she react to seeing her true self? And unfortunately, it's not great. She, she takes her sword and attempts to kill herself. Uh, but the sword is just too heavy. Uh, she describes her grip as childish. And sitting on the edge of her bed, she reflects. And this, is just an, it, this, this little section just seemed a little odd placement. So I think it must be important. She reflects that there must, whether the gods see it or not, be something great in the mortal soul. For suffering, it seems, is infinite and our capacity without limit. And when I read that, I couldn't help but think, well, Oral, could there be something even greater about the mortal soul than simply its capacity for suffering? Does it have a capacity for something else? I think that will hopefully be revealed in chapters three or four. I think so too. <laughs> I am for the first time ever really anxious to read the next couple chapters. <laughs> gotta pace ourselves, gotta pace ourselves. Uh, but she doesn't pace herself because later that night she leaves the palace and she goes without her veil, which is interesting because she realizes uh, that her disguise was now to go bareface, which was again the primary title for this book. So she goes bareface because there was hardly anyone who knew what she looked like unveiled. Oh, there's so much that just hit me right there that I'm gonna not say, but I'm gonna say one thing so we can come back to it so I don't forget about it. If Lewis wanted to call this bare face, I wonder if he's trying to tell us that the key to the spiritual journey is we've all put on this face to the world that now they've only seen Matt from the false self I've let them see. But there needs to be a point where I take that off and they're like, wait, who are you? This doesn't seem like the Matt mm -hmm. I've gotten to know over my whole life. Okay, that's all I'll say for now because we can come back to this at the end. <laughs> uh, she says going out bare face, it, it causes her some shame. She said, uh, it would have shamed me no more to go buff naked which reminds me of that character in The Great Divorce who is so concerned about her appearance. And she even says it would be like going out on Earth with wearing nothing at all because the real her is going to be seen. But yet at the same time, she also owns this new identity. She says, I was Ungit, I and her and she and me. Perhaps if any saw me, they would worship me. Remember what happened to Psyche. Uh, and she said, I had become what the people and the old priests called holy i'm curious your thoughts on that the holy i am not sure i am not sure neither am i not even gonna take a guess either I, th I think there is at least we're seeing that there is something of a transformation in her that she has some kind of connection to the gods in a way that she didn't before and literally at least at least in in the biblical languages holy literally means set apart that there is something that has now been set apart in her uh, but either way, she leaves the city and she goes down to the river. And in the previous years, she couldn't have done anything here, but she'd actually re-engineered the river for trade. So it was now very deep. And so she goes to a place where the bank is high and she ties her ankles together with her belt and she hops towards the edge to throw herself down. And this was my second what moment of this chapter. A voice came from beyond the river. Do not do it. 
It was the voice of a god. No one who hears a god's voice takes it for mortals. Lord, who are you? said I, which is very reminiscent of St. Paul on the road to Damascus. He doesn't answer, though. He just says, do not do it, said the god. You cannot escape Ungit by going to the Deadlands, for she is there also. Die before you die. There is no chance after. Lord, I am Ungit. But there was no answer. What? What? Die. <laughs> I mean, well, that's why, I mean, I chose that quote. I've already mentioned a little bit about it. Die before you die. So I, I'm not sure what to make of the no answer, Lord, I am Ungit. But then he's still talking that there is another Ungit, which suggests to me if she needs to kill this part of her Ungit or maybe not, is Ungit good or bad? I don't know that stuff yet. But here, this die before you die, that's just so much in the New Testament, putting to death your false self, embracing your true self, living out of the identity of Christ. It's, it's being reborn, renewed. You've got to do that before you die. So I, I love that. Above the gateway of uh, an Eastern Orthodox monastery on Mount Athos, Mount Athos is just this island of monasteries. Uh, but above the gateway to one of them, it says, if you die before you die, then you won't die when you die. Whoa. So if you die before you die, if you die to self, then when you die in the flesh, you won't really die. Wow. So it's, it's basically get, a, get ahead of it. Because the God points out that if you go down to the Deadlands, if you go down to the dead, Ungit is going to be there too. Basically that who you are is just simply going to continue. Again, coming back to Lewis's idea of heavenly and hellish creatures, that what we do is we become the creatures that we're going to be for all eternity either heading in one direction, in a heavenly direction, or a hellish direction. If you just simply end your life, you will still be you, and it's just going to continue in that trajectory. So he's pleading with her, die before you die. And that's just, you answer my question right there, of you won't escape Ungit. For a second, my mind went to, you're not going to escape this the actual uh, actual God, Ungit. Let's use that as Ungit as the actual God. But I like what you said here of, that might not be what's being said here. You cannot escape Ungit. You can't escape that self of you that you think is ugly. Yeah. And all of this just mimics Jesus' words, you know, where he says, For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. Jesus repeatedly draws on this idea of, of, of dying to self, that and, and unless a grain of wheat dies, it just remains just a grain. And Orwell reflects on this, and she notes that the God's voice hadn't changed in all of those years. But here's the important point. She says, but I had, there was no rebel in me now. I must not drown and doubtless should not be able. When I laid my head on my pillow, it seemed but for a moment before my women came to wake me, whether because the whole journey had just been a dream or because of my weariness, which had been no wonder, had thrown me into a very fast sleep. So she realizes that she can't go in, in this direction anymore but she the important line in this is that there was no rebel in her now it's the same god it's the same voice but something has changed in her and here we now come back to all of the things that you said a little bit earlier i said i just want to i want to put a pin in that we're going to come back to it because this to me just seems like the beatitudes actually in the service that marie and i pray today we actually pray the beatitudes and they begin blessed are the poor in spirit and what does that mean? And I've heard it expressed in lots of different ways, but it's like, it's like declaring spiritual bankruptcy. It's declaring your dependency upon God. 
It's realizing who you are in light of God. You cannot do this by yourself. It's the, it's, it's the beggar who realizes that he really needs the bread. Otherwise, he is going to die. And this is what I was getting at earlier without realizing, because I just don't put it so eloquently as you do, David. That's probably been one of the bigger truths I have learned in the last year and a half or two years of my life has been what I, how spiritually bankrupt I am and how much I need the Eucharist daily, why I need to receive Christ through the bread, through the Eucharist, why it's a source and summit of Christian life, and why it's been really tough for me the last couple of weeks with this coronavirus. And right away, sure enough, my Exodus 90 starts breaking down, my disciplines start breaking down. Um, I'm just feeling in a spiritual rut. I was thinking that before I jumped on this podcast recording, actually. I was like, man, I'm feeling kind of just spiritually depressed in a rut down. And the main thing that's changed is I can't receive that sustenance. I need it. Every day I need that grace. And I probably recognized that a year and a half or two years ago. And it, honestly, it kind of simplified my spiritual life because so much of my spiritual life before was reading deep theological books because that made me, that nourished me. And there's nothing wrong with that. But then I just came to this realization, once you read those books to learn truth, I've realized the greatest truth was I need to receive this grace every day. And then I just simplified my spiritual routines to rosary, silence, and mass, more or less. And it was powerful. I think it's an, an invitation to a declaration of dependence, not a declaration of independence, but a declaration of dependence. Well done, David. Well, it's also slightly anti-American, so I just kind of leaned into it. Um, <laughs> but it's... It, it's a declaration to God that we need him. Uh, think of David again and again in the Psalms where he says, like a deer pants for, for water, so my heart pants for you, my God. Uh, my heart and my flesh cry out for you, the living God. Uh, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. A recognition that we need God, a recognition of our own spiritual poverty. And this put me in mind of season one when we went through mere Christianity. Lewis wrote, Man had tried to set up on his own, to behave as if he belonged to himself. In other words, fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He is a rebel who must lay down his arms. This is Orwell. This is us. Mm-hmm. And he used the word rebel <laughs> with Orwell. Exactly. Laying down your arms, surrendering, saying you're sorry, realizing that you have been on the wrong track and getting ready to start life over again from the ground floor. Mm, like you've dug down to the ground floor, maybe. Interesting. That is the only way out of a hole. <clears throat> Sounds familiar? <laughs> this process of surrender, this movement, full speed of CERN, is what Christians call repentance. Now, repentance is no fun at all. It's something much harder than merely eating humble pie. It means unlearning all the self-conceit and self-will. It means unlearning all the self-conceit and self-will that we have been training ourselves into for thousands of years, or at least in this case, Oral's lifetime. It means killing part of yourself, undergoing a kind of death. What? David, you just brought this whole book and chapter full circle in one paragraph of Lewis. You're welcome. (laughs) You know what? Wow. Two in one episode. Listeners, mark your diaries. (laughs) I am just, I'm a little bit in awe right now, honestly. And I can't wait for us to talk about this on the YouTube Skype session, which is a good reminder for everyone. You need to start checking those out. And I'm going to call this one Die Before You Die. So look our channel up. But whoa, this is, this is exactly what's happening. The reason I think I'm in so much awe right now is because 
of that retreat that I've talked about so many times. And it's all about the false self, true self. And I've had a lot easier time discussing what the false self is and a true self, but it's hard to know what the journey from the false self to the true self looks like. The best things I've been able to explain are Henry Nouwen, silence and solitude helps you spend time and get in touch with your inner self. Good step. The Eucharist, allowing in Christ. I mean, if you're not Catholic on here, we don't want to be exclusive. So just letting Christ form within you in the Catholic faith, bringing the Eucharist is a very intimate way to do that. But you can obviously do that in other ways of letting Christ form within you. But this is very practical. Like this, I like how he says this this process of surrender, this movement, full speed astern, and how he talks about how you're unlearning all the self-conceit. That's literally the false self, the behavioral patterns we've developed. That's the language I've been using and the self-will that we've trained into us over thousands of years. Like he's explaining, it's just unlearning all of that. It's going back to the ground floor as Orwell did to the very, to that living, the room that had the living rock. Rock. Thank you. I was about to say wood. (laughs) <laughs> I'm always close, David, but never so close. So close. But yes, okay. So that's just why I'm sorry if this doesn't make sense because my mind is just racing right now. But Lewis, I don't think I realized, I, I, I love how you just pulled an entirely something that I don't think you, you and I even fully realized when we arrived at first time in mere Christianity. Now it makes so much more sense. I think it does. I'm done with my monologue. <laughs> it was a beautiful monologue. Thank you, Matthew. Oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, have you got anything else to add before we wrap up? We're going to talk more about this, but we're going to do it on our Skype session. So for all of you guys, because we have about 10 times the listeners on podcasts as we do the YouTube channels, uh, you guys need to all go over to YouTube, search Pints with Jack, and look at the Skype session. This one's going to be called Die Before You Die. And everyone who is on the $5 or more a month, you can come and join us on the Slack channel. It's been really nice, actually, the last week or so. Uh, the chat has really kicked up there as everyone is stuck at home trying to work out what to do with their lives was they're all in quarantine. Yeah, I'm amazed to see where that will go in six months, 12 months, because it's still in the early stages. And as the community grows, there's going to be more conversation going on. Mm. I think it'll be particularly good when we are on to the screw tape letters, which is what we're going to be doing next season. I can't wait. This has been, what I've loved about this book is it's tested my delay gratification because the truth that we just got to today, and I know there's going to be more in chapter three and more in chapter four, it's going to be mind blowing. And I will probably look back and say, this was wonderful, but it took us four months to get to, whereas mere Christianity, you get gratification every chapter. It's like truth, truth, Mm -hmm. truth. This one, there's some chapters of, there's little bits of truth. It's an interesting story, but I'm a person that just likes it to be told right up front here. It's a process of experiencing the, it through the character. And there, I, I do recognize there's a beauty to it. Not my style, but there's a beauty to it. <laughs> well, on that note, listeners, please join us again next week when we'll be going further up and further in. Cheers. Cheers.